Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Transformed Sales Podcast. Today, I am so excited to have Jason Bay with Blissful Prospecting here. How are you, Jason? I'm doing good. I think we've had this scheduled for a couple months or something like that. So it's, I'm glad that we're getting a chance to finally talk. I know. We're both so crazy, crazy busy these days, which is great yeah. when you own, own your own business. So Jason Bay is a chief prospecting officer at Blissful Prospecting. He's on a mission to help reps and sales teams turn complete strangers into paying customers. A few of his clients have included reps and sales teams from companies like Zoom, Medela, Xfinity, Commvault, and many, many more. Sales is the only adult job he's ever had, and he does everything from selling house paint, running outbound call centers, to helping thousands of reps master Cole's outreach. So sales, when you grew up, you knew you wanted to be in sales. How did you get started and how did you transition to where you are today? Yeah, I didn't know that I wanted to be in sales, actually. <laughs> so really? I think a lot of people, I don't know, you interview a lot of people too. I think, I think most people get into sales by accident. So when I was 18, going into college, and I was a very shy kid, by the way. So very shy even in high school, didn't talk to a lot of people that I didn't know. I'm still somewhat introverted. Like the thought of talking to a person and knocking on their door or giving them a cold call, like that was never something I ever would want to do. You know what I mean? So I studied forensic science as a freshman and someone came into my classroom and talked about this internship to run a house painting business over the summer. And I said, yes, because you could make $10,000, right? And I was like, that's way better than working at the mill that my dad works at, you know, stacking wood on a cart for 60 hours a week. So what I didn't know joining that company was that I would be going door to door. I just didn't put two and two together, you know? So I would travel two and a half hours back from college to go back home in Brookings, Oregon, 5,000 person town. And now I'm having to go door to door to find leads for houses that, you know, we could paint. And it was a really, really great opportunity because I got taught marketing. I got taught how to sell. I got taught how to hire painters, how to build a small business, right? Well, the actual door to door part of it was like, I was literally like sitting in my car for an hour, like before I did it the first time, like sweating, you know what I mean? I was so anxious to do it, but it turned out I was like pretty natural at it. I, I sold a hundred thousand dollars worth of paint jobs in uh, my first year and made $30,000 over a summer <laughs> for school. What? So I was like, I love sales. Yeah. So since then, that was in 2008, I became a sales manager with them, worked with them as a marketing director and a sales director. And, and then in 2000, what, 2013, 2014, I sort of left that company full-time to consult and uh, help other companies. And since uh, I think 2017, I've been with Blissful Prospecting and the focus has been more with you know, B2B companies, primarily selling software, some professional services, but really, you know, how do we help them use more than just a script or a cold email template and actually have conversations with prospects, not talk so much about what they do and less about pitching and more about digging into problems that prospects have. How do we have really intelligent conversations with people that didn't ask us, you know, to reach out to them? And how do we get meetings from that so that we can, you know, close deals? So that's kind of my, my career in a nutshell, I guess, over the last 15 years. So you made $30,000 in one summer as like a 20 yeah. year old, right? Yeah, I was 19. Actually, I had braces at the time. And, um, I'll tell you what, I learned about personal finance the hard way, though, because I, I made pretty good money for a college student, you know what I mean? And from there, it was like, oh, anything that I want to do, 
I'm going to do. Oh, I want to go fly down to Los Angeles to go to a John Mayer concert. I'm going to go do that. I want to get booze for my friends, you know, or go out to eat late at night or whatever. I'm just going to do all of that. So it was a double-edged sword for sure. It was good, you know, making that kind of money, but it was also, I learned the hard way, racking up tons of credit card debt, <laughs> you know, um, how, how to budget and do all that other. That's, that's a topic for another time though. <laughs> I love it. I love it. One of the things that I love telling salespeople is like, you make commission, you make a bonus, you have this variable compensation. What are you actually working for? Right? So I love to help them make goals, right? Because we got to make that money do something. Otherwise, we end up like kind of like you said, just spending the money any kind of way. Yep. No, totally. Hey, you have to have a purpose and a why behind what you're doing. And I think that if you haven't explored this and you're listening, I, I think thinking about what your fire goal is. Are you familiar with fire? Mm-mm. Talk to us about it. So fire is an acronym for financially independent retire early. So it's this movement of people that they look at money as a tool to help them retire early. So if you think about you know what you would need to make over the course of a year to support your lifestyle and you kind of do the math backwards, it's about, I think, maybe take that number and multiply it by, I think 24 is the number, whatever it is to where you could earn six, 8% off the you know, stock market or, or whatever. It's like having that number. It's like, hey, if I have investments and things like this that I can accumulate over 15, 20, 25 years or whatever, if you're really smart with your money and sales, you could retire in, in 20 years if you wanted to. Mm, you know, okay. And for some people that are doing enterprise, they could retire even quicker. You know, but I think having that number in mind, if that's something that you want to do, but even if you decided not to retire, having the ability to be totally financially free, yeah. I think is really big. Another thing, because you got me rolling on this, is I think every sales professional should have six to 12 months of emergency savings in cash. I know that's not great investment you know, advice, but my life completely changed when we had like a year runway where like if I didn't work for a year, we wouldn't be screwed. You know what I mean? And it allows you to say no to stuff. So it allows you to quit a job that's toxic for you. It allows you to not take on bad customers. It allows you to not be super desperate when you're prospecting because you don't need the meeting. You know what I mean? And people always talk about abundance, but you know what's better than having an abundance mindset is actual real abundance, like actually having abundance. Then you don't have to fake having an abundance mindset. I love that. And you know, many, many years ago when I got into sales, I was very adamant about what I, the goals I wanted to achieve, right? And I was like, okay, mm. I want to pay off all my debt paid off all the debt, everything but the house, right? And then once you have that freedom and you have money saved in the bank, you can take vacations. You can put your kids in private school if you want to put them in private school and you don't worry about it, right? And so even as a salesperson, a business owner, having that runway of six to 12 months, it allows you to know that, okay, yes, I need to close the sale, but my mortgage payment doesn't depend on the next sale I close, right? So really having that being grounded because sales, a career in sales can change the trajectory of your life. It can absolutely change what you do and how you do it. But you have to make sure that the money that you make, the abundance that you have, you're putting it in the right place at the right time. And maybe at this point in your life, you need to pay off a student loan. That's what you got to do. Maybe you want to save for a house. That's what you do. But I met with a lady yesterday and she was like, you know, I pay myself a pretty good salary. She's a, a business owner. I have what I need, but so I don't really know what, what I want to do with this money. I'm like, did you say you want to buy a building? How about we buy that building cash, right? So again, like thinking through, what do I want to do with this money I'm making? 
yeah, what do you want to do? And I, I do this exercise all the time with my wife, Sarah. It's uh, what does the ideal day look like for you? What does it look like? You know, what does that ideal day look like? You know, for me, it's doing something fairly similar to what I'm doing right now. It would be less being less busy than I am right now, which I'm working towards. But like, really think about like, what is that thing that you want to do? And money is just a great tool to be able to help you to do that. Because your ideal day might involve working a job that maybe pays less money than you make right now, or maybe running your own business or not working at all. I don't know what it is for you if you're listening, but like really think about like, what time would I want to wake up? What would I eat for breakfast? Uh, what kind of freedom you know, would I want? And that's what I think that if you can be smart with your goals and think about how you would use it, I find that because I'm not really super money motivated. I'm more motivated by lifestyle. So what kind of lifestyle do I want and how can I use money as a way to you know, sort of achieve that? And there are some people that are the opposite. Some people are very coin operated. You know, so I think knowing what motivates you, another exercise that I did with my wife too that was really helpful is thinking about our core values. Mm. And this is from, I think, Rich Bach. Can't remember his full name, but he's a personal finance kind of guy. But one of the first exercises he recommends for people that are married, especially that share money, uh, which I do, is you know, what do you value? And it's a really simple kind of question, but when you really think about it, we're like, well, one of the biggest things that we value is relationships and having really good friendships and being very close with family. So is how we spend money in alignment with that? Is that how we are using our money? Are we using it to better our relationships? Because a lot of people are like, oh, don't go out to eat. You know, don't do all this other stuff. But we're like, but if we spend that money going out to eat with friends and then it helps us have closer relationships, that's actually in alignment with our values. Yeah. Personal health is another big value for us. So people may be like, oh, don't spend money on the expensive gym membership or whatever. Well, if that's in alignment with what you value, that's really what you're looking for. Yeah. And not that this is meant to be like a personal finance thing, because I'm not a personal like finance <laughs> guru yeah. or a financial advisor. So don't take any money advice from me. These are just kind of things that I'm sharing <laughs> from my journey. Yeah. <laughs> just to put that out there. I think the other thing is like, you'll find that we do a lot of things on a daily basis and spend money on things that are not in alignment with what we value. So I think sales is really interesting because like, think about how you can do this in a way that helps you do more of what you value, both where you spend your time and what you spend your money on is how I mm -hmm. like to think about it. I love it. And I think that the key is as a leader, we know that everyone on our team has a different value system. So as we're yeah. coaching them or as we're talking to them, we want to align what they're doing with their values, right? Like I know one thing that I value is having somebody to come clean my house. And so I would yeah. always tell people, yes, <laughs> okay, I'll skip lunch today <laughs> because I want to make sure that I have money for somebody to clean my house, right? And so knowing yeah. what motivates and what drives the people on your team helps them work harder. It helps them achieve each and every goal. So talk to me about, so you started as a door-to-door -door salesperson and you moved up the ranks. So you mentioned that first day sitting in the car being nervous. What are some of the key things that you learned by being a door-to-door -door salesman that you still use today? Oh, so much. It's really funny because, have you sold B2C as well as B2B? Mostly, oh, B2B. I'm a B2B person. Okay, so I've, I've spent, I think, what, the first, I guess, six or seven years of my career in B2C. And a lot of people like to pretend that B2C is so much different than B2B, and it's really more similar than it is different. And, you know, with B2B, there's just more people that you need to sell to, right? And it's they're not spending their money, they're spending a company's money. And I know those are kind of big differences, but a lot of the principles still apply. A lot of the 
work that I do with sales teams on cold calling, I mean, I just go back to what I learned literally going door to door for the first time. There's a couple of really big things. You know, a lot of the advice is, well, rejection's not that big of a deal. Get over it. Well, yeah, like if it was that easy, everyone would just get over it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And one of the things that I learned is how to not only desensitize myself to rejection, but I think to actually understand why you are afraid of getting rejected. Hmm. You know, like think about like why a salesperson, if you're as a sales leader working with someone that doesn't want to pick up the phone and call or is too afraid to ask for what they want, telling them to just get over it is not very good advice. That doesn't work right? Or forcing people to do something they're scared of. Just, it doesn't work. You know, the thing that to do is to really help a person understand that they feel this way and that it's normal to feel this way. So one of the first things I was taught is just how can you make it less about what you want from this person, a meeting and more about starting a conversation. So I always say, choose conversations over meetings. So reframe the purpose of this to, I just need to start a conversation with this person. That makes it a win. From there, I will figure out if it makes sense for us to in-house painting schedule an estimate or if I'm calling now, schedule an appointment with this person. I think reframing what you're doing as I start conversations with people and it's up to them whether or not they say yes. All I can do is really kind of influence that, right? So going in and resetting your expectations was a really big thing that I took away. I think the other thing too, and this is when I talk about call reluctance, you know, the kind of thing that we have going on, there's a habit loop right? It's very simple. A habit loop is there's some sort of cue or trigger. That's number one. Two is that cue or trigger causes some sort of behavior or routine. And three is there's a reward for that. So a really simple example would be a cue trigger. I get hungry. And it's at the end of the day, behavior routine. I go into the pantry to grab something that's like really quick and easy to eat reward. I'm no longer hungry, right? Now we go through these same habit loops, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. A lot of it happens subconsciously. One habit loop that people have around going door to door or doing any kind of cold calling or anything like that is, you know, I open up this person's LinkedIn profile, I see their level of seniority, and I start to tell myself this story, right? This activity cues this behavior, this narrative where, I don't want to bog this person. God, they seem really busy. They've been doing it for 20 years. You know, what value could I offer? And the reward for that is procrastination. Procrastination is a mental reward because you're not going to do the thing that makes you anxious. That's a really dangerous habit loop, you know, to be in. So what I sort of recommend, and this is sort of the next thing I wanted to share is that like, if you can wrap your head around the worst case scenario, like I've seen everything, dude, like going door to door. I've seen people answer the door in their underwear. (laughs) I've been cussed (laughs) off of someone's like lawn. You know what I mean? But that didn't really happen that often. That was maybe one out of a hundred people that I talked to. And you know what happened after that? I just went to the next door and talked to the next person. It really wasn't like nothing happened to me. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think this like acceptance, yeah, this like resilience and like just accepting and being okay with the worst case scenario, right? That was another thing that I I had to learn doing that is that the worst case scenario is that someone's going to be super pissed that you're at their doorstep. And you know what? That might make you feel really weird about what you're doing for a couple minutes. Just sit in that emotion and be like, yeah, that sucked, dude. That person was an a-hole, you know, or whatever. (laughs) And you just go to the next person. You know what I mean? That was a really important lesson I learned there. Again, that applies same across B2B prospecting. You're going to get people that are rude to you sometimes. Most of the time that doesn't happen though. And we could talk about how to make the cold call if you want to, um, because that's a really big piece. Because if you just call people and just try to pitch your solution to them, there's going to be a lot of rejection when you do that, you know? But those are two really big things that I took with me is the accepting the worst case scenario and really kind of reframing what the actual goal is Mm. during this interaction. 
And so I always love this when I, I talk to sales experts and I really don't realize it before we get on the podcast, but our ways of thinking are so similar because I talk about eliminating what I like to call self-limiting beliefs. And so I'm not a, a prospector like you. I'm more in the middle of the process, right? The discovery, the demo after we actually have them in the funnel, but that rejection or I'm not good enough or, oh, that's a lot of money. I don't think I can ask for that much amount of money. Like all of that, what's happening in your head is what prevents us from doing the action. And so really realizing, acknowledging like, yes, this may happen, but if this does happen, this is how I'm going to deal with it. Or yeah, my feelings just got hurt. I spent, I had this, I called this person 20 times. They finally answered the phone and then they said, no, I don't want to talk to you ever again. Stop calling me. And that hurts, right? Because I invested so much into that. Yeah. And it's okay because we're humans, but it's okay to take a lick, but we got to get right back moving. Right, We have to keep the momentum going and really changing the behaviors and changing the mindset is really what helps us perform better in sales. Yeah, that's the part you have control over is your mindset, mm -hmm. right? You control that part. And framing how you respond to things I think is super important. And I think you mentioned something, we haven't really directly talked about it, but the goal is not to like, like being rejected. That's never gonna happen. Like just, you're not gonna ever like being rejected. It's actually good to just sit in there feeling it. Give yourself a minute or two be like, dude, that sucked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, okay. and to recognize how you're feeling, which I've sort of learned the hard way through like therapy, you know, it's just like, dude, that doesn't feel good because we have tens of thousands of years of evolution that rejection and getting rejected from other people, that means that you're not a part of the tribe anymore and you're not gonna survive. That doesn't feel good on purpose. It's not supposed mm -hmm. to feel good but we don't live in tribes anymore. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. Life is not at stake if someone that you don't know says no to you. And if you can really kind of think about, you know, how can I be more intrinsically motivated and not need the approval of people that I don't know that frankly, they don't care about me. And I don't care about them because I don't even know them. So be more intrinsically motivated to, you know, feel good because you're doing the right thing and having the conversation and being courageous and picking up the phone and calling versus doing it for the validation from other people. Yeah. And one of the hardest things that salespeople have to do is this, this cold piece, right? So whether if they're a full cycle salesperson, so they have to prospect and demo and close, or they just focus only on the cold calling, getting over that, like, that fear of rejection is hard or the fear of, am I going to make the number of appointments I need to make? And I really like what you said. It's like, stay in the moment. Like stay in the place that you are and just enjoy it. Learn from what went wrong. Learn from what went right and keep building and building and building because these things don't happen overnight. Like your first day going door to door was definitely not like your 500th day going door to door. So as you transitioned from being that individual contributor to being a leader, what are some of the the behaviors or the actions or the tactics that you really try to implement in your team to help them become as excellent as you are were yeah great question so like candidly i was like sales i learned how to do pretty came pretty naturally to me leading people did not i had a huge learning curve like learning how to teach people to do things was really tough i didn't i never had really done that at that point in my life you know i was 20 years old at this time now you know so there's a couple things that I could tell you that I messed up on that I think were really good learning lessons. So one, 
and this is the advice that I was given because we had a really great training at the company I worked with. Um, they said, your biggest strengths will be your team's biggest weaknesses. And I didn't really understand what that meant mm. until I started and I, I saw, hey, all the things that came pretty naturally to me, like building rapport with someone, that seems like a no brainer, no duh, like kind of thing that you would do. Not pitching a lot and talking about your thing, but asking questions and figuring out what's important. To that seemed pretty obvious to me. But you know what my team didn't do? They didn't ask questions. They weren't as curious as I was. And they just went straight into, here's what we do and why you should buy from me, you know? So I think reframing and assuming that the people I'm training assume that they don't know anything about the thing you're training them about. Have that conversation. Hey, I'm going to come in and just assume that you know nothing, okay? It's not because I think you're an idiot, <laughs> all right? It's just like, you don't know what you don't know. You've never done this job before, you know? And then I think making sure to really focus on what are the things that come really naturally to me that I didn't have to be taught and to double down, you know, on those things. The other thing that I really made a mistake of is as a manager, especially first time managers, your instinct is to fix, fix, fix. It's to be a firefighter and put out fires, right? Oh, someone needs something. Let me just do it for them. Let me pick up the phone and call that prospect that they're having a hard time to get to close. Let me tell them what they should say in the email. And what you do is you completely rob someone of their own resourcefulness when you do that. And your team actually doesn't get better because they're doing things the way that you want them to do. You're not taking advantage of all these smart, intelligent people that you have in your team that could come up with different, clever, and frankly, more like effective ways of doing things. So you have this instinct and it's I think good just to be aware of these biases that we have and these things that we're going to do so that, you know, you're conscious of it and you can maybe avoid doing those things, right? But you're going to have these natural urges. And I'm not a parent, but I imagine that if I had kids, it would be a very similar kind of thing. I would have this, like, if I see them suffering, I would want to step in and do something for them. But your reps, like, they need to fall on their face. They need to mess up a call. They need to lose a deal. They have to go through that stuff in order for them to learn. So I think those are some of the really big things. The other thing that I made a big mistake of, and I talk to sales managers all the time about this, is you gotta have freaking boundaries, dude. <laughs> like you have to have boundaries with your reps. That means if they need something at nine o'clock at night, you don't pick up the phone, dude. You know, have some boundaries with these people, like establish what your working hours are. And you don't respond to emails on the weekend. You don't do stuff and respond to phone calls in the evening when you're having dinner with your family or significant other. Like you have to have these personal boundaries. It's a good thing that this happened, but you know, my first sales manager job like cost me a relationship. And again, I'm married to someone else now. So it was really good that that happened. You know what I mean? But it did, it cost me a relationship and I had no balance. I had no boundaries. I was just like work, work, work. And I prioritized putting out all of these fires. It really affected my personal life. And when your personal life is affected, it affects your professional life because you're not showing up. So those are some of the things I think off the top of my head and, you know, having boundaries, making sure that you teach people how to fish instead of catching the fish for them and making sure that you come in aware that your biggest strengths are going to be your team's biggest weaknesses. You're going to have to double down on things that come naturally to you. Man, I've had some really phenomenal guests on this podcast, but I don't think I've had anybody who at 20 years old was able to pick those things out, right? or even being introspective enough to say, these are the biggest lessons learned. And I was literally just coaching a client and we talked about the exact same thing. Like six o'clock, your day needs to be done. I don't care what is happening. She was like, well, what do I do? What do I do if, if this happens or that happens? I said, just leave it until the next day. Stop fixing all their problems. 
because they'll never learn, right? Like if you are always a savior, then the salespeople never learn how to fix things. They never learn how to triage. They don't learn how to do. And so really, oh, all those tips you gave, they're so amazing. I just love them. I love them. So I want to tap into a little bit of what you do now in terms of you talked about the mechanics of the cold call. And so I'm guessing that a lot of what you learned in the B2C world going door to door really informs the way that you're teaching companies, leaders, people to cold call. Tell us what your, how your method is different than all the other people out there. I think there's a couple of really big things that people mess up, whether it's phone, email, whatever they're doing. So one is there tends to be a one size fits approach, you know, for everyone they reach out to. Mm. So the very first thing that you need to do is figure out a way to go from this mass blast to what I call a quality first approach. So before you ever pick up the phone or email someone, so I'll give you an example. So I work with a company right now that has like project management software. One of their personas is marketing people. And one is like PMO, like project style people. If I send the same message or say the same thing to both of those people who do very different things at these companies, it's going to fall flat. It's going to look generic. So if I treat my entire target market and the people I reach out to as one, it's going to be very ineffective. You're going to get rejected a ton. You're going to be able to send out a lot of volume and make a lot of calls, but the rejection is going to be very high because I'm using generic stuff that doesn't really resonate with these folks. So on the other side of that is what I call quality first. So I'm basically, if you imagine a circle for those of you listening, and that's your, your target market, all the people you could reach out to, I want to find little pockets in there of people that have similarities and patterns. So one way to do that is filtering by persona. Another way is to talk to specific, in this case, marketers, maybe that work at software companies that are enterprise above a thousand employees. These people are all going to have something kind of similar going on. And maybe I even go down even further and it's companies in marketing that are hiring, right? And they're dealing with like the types of growth that they would need a new tool to help with. And I can talk to all of those people in a very similar way with very slight customization. So that's the very first thing that people make a mistake of is they just do like they want a one size fits all approach. The second thing is you need to move from a me centric way of talking to a you centric way. So instead of this is called using your customer voice. So instead of saying we at this company help set up dashboards and analytics for you to manage projects faster and we can take that off your belt. That's like talking about what we do. I'm not talking through the lens of the customer. So talking through the lens of the customer would be, you know, we help marketing teams who oftentimes feel like an internal marketing department at their company or an internal marketing agency, excuse me, and they're being pulled in 20, 30, 40 different directions with all these projects. We help them bring some sanity to that chaos and help them organize their projects better so they can meet their deadlines. Right? It's like people come to us to fix this problem and here's how we help them versus our solution does this. Mm. It's two very different ways of talking. So to answer your question around cold calling, you have to come in and say, hey, I'm going to filter the people that I talk to and I'm going to have different ways of talking to people that have different jobs because they're going to engage with our solution differently. And I'm going to be you-centric in how I approach this. So the mistake that people make is when they call people, it's, hey, this is Jason with Blissful Prospecting. Did I catch so-and-so? Yeah. Hey, I was calling because at XYZ company, we do this. So they give the pitch at the very beginning. What I want to do instead is completely do the opposite of that. I'm going to talk to what people like you are working on. Okay. And I'll give you another example with a client. So this is a client that sells an automated welding solution. So they reach out to like VPs of, you know, operations and manufacturing. So it's a, Hey, this is Jason with XYZ company. I know I probably got you in the middle of something, but you got a minute, you know, for me to tell you why I'm calling. 
You can let me know if you want to keep chatting. Permission-based opener, right? Get the prospect to opt in. Prospect nine times out of 10 will say yes. Hey, great. Well, I talked to a lot of VPs of operations and they typically tell me that they're working on one of two things right now. One is they have these parts that they're manufacturing that are really low volume and highly customized and they're struggling to automate certain parts of that process. Or two, they're short on welders right now and they're having a heck of a time with the labor shortage of finding qualified labor to come in so that they can keep ahead of their production targets. Does any of that resonate with you or am I way off here? And the prospect would be like, uh, actually, yeah, we're focused on that first thing that you said. And now I've started the conversation by talking about you and what you're focused on. And now I'm going to ask questions around those things. And then I can just say, we help with that versus making the entire call about me and what I help with. Hmm. So I call those priority drops. I want to open the call and talk about things that they are likely working on because I talk to so many people like them. I'm going to filter the conversation around those things versus spray and pray. How can I just pitch and see who bites? Mm. You know, that's not how this works. I want to suggest things that people like them are working on and see if any of that resonates. That's kind of the, the short version, I guess, of, of the, the cold calling approach. I love it. And you hit on two things that I am so adamant about that I think teams as well as leaders need to really focus on. One of the things that I like to say is you got to niche down until it hurts right? So there are riches in the niches. So as what is that smallest addressable market that you can find the similarities because you get really, really good. Like you should know more than the customer. So you should really understand the challenges that they're having, the pains, the problems. And that being said, when I understand that my VP of operations in a company that has 500 employees or whatever that is, they're going to have similar challenges, right? And when I think about those problems that they're having and the impacts that it has on the organization, that's how I craft those customized statements. And I think what a lot of people are, are doing wrong is they're going way too far on the personalization side. And so because they're so far down the personalization line, their volume is so low and then they get frustrated because they're not getting as much return on their investment. But if you just focus, get that nice little focus niche and say, okay, you're focused on this. Okay, you're focused on that. That's really what helps those things flow. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jason. You have given us so much insight into really applying the B2C world into the B2B world. Because as you said, a lot of people are like, oh, it's two different things, but we're still selling to people, right? So there's always a person at the end of it. And then these amazing tips you've given us about cold calling as well as being a strong leader. So I thank you so much for your time, your talent, and your expertise today. And that was another episode of the Transform Sales Podcast. Remember, in everything that you do, in every way that you can, find a way to transform your sales. Until next time.